So we're in John chapter 5. This is the third part of our series uh, we're doing through John's gospel, seven signs in John's gospel, seven miracles that point to exactly who Jesus Christ is. Now, what we read here tonight in Genesis, or Genesis, John chapter 5, is similar to what we looked at last week in chapter 4. And although it's similar, it's also very, very different as well. Last week, we were in Cana of Galilee, and there was a desperate situation. There was a child who was sick, sick to the point of death, and a father is desperate. And a desperate father will do anything to save his child. And so he comes desperately to Jesus. He pleads with Jesus. He commands Jesus, come and make my child well. And of course, Jesus doesn't need to go. He doesn't need to travel the 20 miles back to Capernaum because Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. And so just by speaking, he's able to heal this child instantaneously. This week, we move from Cana and Galilee down into Jerusalem, the capital city. And even though we've geographically moved, we find another desperate situation. There's somebody who's sick. It hasn't come upon them suddenly like this child in the previous chapter. In fact, this person's been ill for many, many years. It's a desperate situation, but this person isn't even desperate for Jesus to help them. In fact, as we read this tonight, we'll discover this person knows nothing about Jesus. They don't even know Jesus' name. But the outcome is exactly the same. We see the miraculous hand of Jesus Christ. We see this other spectacular sign, this clear sign and neon lights that Jesus Christ is somebody special. And to ignore him, to go against him, would be extremely foolish. So let's read God's word. We're going to read the first 17 verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, Is it the Sabbath, and it is, not, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed? But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, My father is working until now, and I am working. Amen. Let's pray. Let's ask that God would speak to us. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is very clear, very simple, and points us in the right direction. 
And so as we pray as we come tonight to again what is a familiar story to many, may we see with clear eyes and clear understanding, may he speak to your hearts, and may all of us tonight at the end of this say, he is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of our hearts. He's worthy of our lives. And may we all live holy and pure lives because we want to worship and to live for the one who is the center of character of this passage. Help us, bless us, speak to us. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. What we have here in chapter 5 is a very sad situation. We have a man who's an invalid, limited movement for 38 years of his life. And he sits day by day at this pool, the pool of Bethesda, and as he sits there, as he looks all around him, he sees other similar sad situations. All around this pool, there's people who are blind, there's people who are lame, there's people who are paralyzed. Everybody sitting around this pool is in a desperate situation. And there's this belief that if the water stirs, it's got healing powers, and the first person into the pool will be healed. Now, some Bible translations have a verse in there, verse 4, that talks about an angel stirring it, so it seems to be some supernatural power. When I read it out here, my um, translation doesn't actually have verse 4. It goes from verse 3 down to verse 5. The reason for that is that verse about the angel stirring doesn't actually appear in the original manuscripts that we have that we translate our Bible. It actually doesn't appear in, in, in Bibles until hundreds of years after. It's an added addition, and we, we don't know how that has come about. So um, the, that sort of mention of a supernatural power doesn't seem to be in the original versions of the Bible. And so what is this? That there's this stirring of the water and people go into it and they're healed. It's probably more of an old wives true, how accurate it was, were people genuinely healed when well, the Bible doesn't record this kind of detail. But that's what these people are clinging to. They're clinging to this hope. If I can get into the water first when it stirs, then I will get out of this desperate situation. Jesus comes along to this one person. It's a crowded area, but he speaks only to one. Now, why did he choose this man? Out of all the, the lame people there, the blind, the paralyzed, how did he choose this one? The Bible doesn't tell us. There's no explanation given. But Jesus homes in on, on one man, and he asks him a very obvious question, would you like to be healed? I'm sure the man is, you know, quick to answer that. Of course, I'd like to be healed. But he starts to explain there's, there's no way that's going to happen because he's got nobody to help him. Because when the water stirs, he tries to get in first, but somebody always gets there before him. And do you know why somebody always gets before him? He's got nobody to help him. He's got no family members, no friends who can lift him up and put him into the water. And so he tries, but he never quite gets there. Let's think about this. He's been waiting there for 38 years. Or he's been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years of hope that maybe he might get into the water. Maybe he might get healed. He wants to be healed, but there's nobody to help him. But there is somebody to help him. There's somebody who's come along this time. Jesus is here. This is all going to change. Look at these few simple words. Let me read again verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And look what hap happens, verse 9. And at once... Didn't take a while. At once the man was healed 
and he took up his bed and he walked and I'm sure he walked away. There was no need to be, for him to be sitting around the pool. Look at that word, at, those words, at once. Mark's gospel talks a lot about the miracles that Jesus did and uses the word frequently, immediately. Exactly the same thing. When Jesus heals, just like he did in the last chapter, chapter four, it's immediate, it's instantaneous. And the proof of this is the man gets up and he starts to walk. There is no medical explanation for this. It's an absolutely incredible miracle. Now you think about this. This man has been an invalid for 38 years, hasn't walked, hasn't been able to get up and move about. What state do you think the muscles in his legs were in after 38 years of being an invalid? His muscles had wasted away, no strength. And even if you were to give him an operation or something to, to cure his problem, he still wouldn't be able to get up and walk immediately. It would take months and months of constant physio to try and get some strength back into his legs, even so he could start to make a few hesitant steps. But when Jesus heals him, it's instantaneous. All that strength in his muscles is restored. That would certainly cure the waiting list in our NHS if you had somebody who could do that kind of thing. An instantaneous healing, and he walks away. No medical explanation for that. Even the best doctor, if they could perform that kind of surgery, couldn't bring the man to the state that Jesus is able to do. And what do we have here? It's a powerful sign. That's what these stories in John's Gospels are, these seven signs that we're going to look at, these seven miracles that shine with neon lights, and they point us in a certain direction. And what is the sign clearly saying? This is no ordinary man. Only God could do this. And so the man who spoke these words and instantaneously healed him must be the Messiah. Jesus Christ must be the Son of God, and he must be the Savior of the world. Now, when you drive along the road and you see signs, you see signposts at the side, they always are usually very clear. They don't clutter signposts with lots of detail and lots of small print because you can't take it in. The purpose of a sign is to be very simple and very clear. So if we were coming along, we didn't know how to get to Carrickfergus, and you saw a sign, it would probably have a few bits of information, probably say Carrickfergus, tell you how many miles, three miles, and an arrow saying that way or this way or whatever way it is. Very simple and very, very clear. That's what we have here in John's Gospel. John's gospel gives us signs which are really simple and very clear, and we're left without any doubt what direction they're pointing us in. An invalid is instantaneously healed. This man must be the Messiah. And here's the incredible thing of John's gospel. Even though the sign is so simple and so clear, people still miss it. People still end up on the wrong road. The tragedy of people's lives here, that the sign is right in front of their face and they still go the wrong direction. You'd expect a miracle like this to cause a reaction. You'd expect people to be out singing and dancing on the street when they see something like this happen. You would expect to see an influx of new followers and disciples and say, this is the Messiah, this is the one we've been waiting for, let's follow him. Instead, what does this miracle cause here in John 5? It actually causes conflict. And we actually come across people who are not amazed, who are not astounded, who are not praising God, saying, is he worthy? They're actually thinking in their heads, we need to kill this man. We need to get rid of him. 
And the big issue that causes the conflict in the hearts and minds of these people who end up going the wrong road is that the miracle happened on the Sabbath. And what happens here on the Sabbath is contrary to Jewish tradition. Let me read verse 10 again. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Lifting up your bed and walking along the road was considered to be work. This man was working on the Sabbath because he was heading home with his bed under his arm because he no longer needed to lie on. It is lawful. It is not lawful. That is actually incorrect. There is nowhere in the law that states the law of God that is unlawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath and walk. Do you know what it's contrary to? Not the law of God that God has given. It's actually contrary to Jewish tradition, the man-made laws that they had added in. And so when it came to Sabbath work, they had made 38 different categories of things that you weren't allowed to do. And if you did this, like carry your bed along the road, you, in their eyes, had broken the law. Here's a man who had never worked a day in his life. He hadn't been able to work a day in his life. He was an invalid. And they're getting at him because he's walking home with his bed. So instead of seeing the sign, instead of alarm bells going in the head going, how did this happen? Who made this happen? We want to follow this person. They're coming back to their man-made laws. Now, if what Jesus did on the Sabbath was bad on their eyes, what Jesus says next is even worse. Let's read verse 17. But Jesus answered them. These are these people who are giving off because he healed on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. What does that mean? What's the argument Jesus is making to them? What's the argument he's making for healing on the Sabbath? He's simply saying to them, I'm doing what my father's doing. I'm healing on the Sabbath because that's what my father is doing as well. My father heals on the Sabbath. He's a God of compassion. You want to read into that there. And I am doing exactly the same as what my father is doing. Now, the real issue in what he said there, the real thing that gets on the good of these people and really, really irritates them is the fact that he uses the phrase, my father. Because a Jew, when he worshiped God in his corporate worship, they would use the phrase, our father. But a religious Jew would never, ever think of using the phrase, my father. Because that phrase speaks of a unique father-son relationship. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, used the phrase, my father, instead of our father. What Jesus was hinting at, what he was, wasn't even hinting, he was clearly stating was, there was a special relationship between God the father and him as the son. He was claiming in that statement to be, the Son of God. And in that statement, he's claiming to be dead. He's claiming to be God himself. And the Jews didn't miss the point. They didn't miss what he was saying when he called him my father. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And the penalty for such a claim, for such blasphemy, was to put the person to death. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And Jesus doesn't slip away. In fact, what Jesus continues to do 
which will irritate them even more as he continues to highlight the unique relationship that he has with the Father. Let's read verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So he's claimed that he's equal with God. God's his Father. He's God the Son. But now he's also claiming that he's equal to God the Father in their activity. Whatever God the Father does, I do the same things. Only God the Son could say that there. And not only does he say he's equal in his activity, he's also equal in his ability to give life. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, who is the only person who can give life? Who can give life to humans? Who can take dead things and bring them to life again? I couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. The only person who can claim to do that is God himself. And Jesus said he's equal to God because he has the power to give life. Now, he says this with his mouth, but as we work our way through John's gospel, as we work our way through this series, it's actually the last of the seven signs, we see that Jesus proved that with his actions. Where he comes to the tomb of Lazarus, he speaks, and with the power of his voice, he brings a dead man back to life. And then he makes this remarkable claim. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so as Jesus keeps speaking here to these irritated Jews, he's giving them more and more ammunition, more and more hatred for him, and more and more reasons to put him to death. But he doesn't stop. He keeps on going. He goes on to say, I'm also equal with God because I am able to judge people. Verse 27, and he, that's God the Father, has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Again, only God has the right, only God has the power to be the judge and to bring judgment upon people. And Jesus is also claiming to have the same power, the same authority to execute judgment on people. And not only does he have authority to judge people, Jesus also claims that he's the power to save people from coming judgment. Let's look back at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he passes from death to life. If you listen to the words that I say and you believe them, you will not be judged but instead you will move from death to life. Now, anyone can make those claims. I could stand here on this platform tonight and say, I am God. I am God, and because I am God, I have authority. I have authority to give life to people. I can bring people back to life. I can move people away from judgment into eternal life. I have the power and the authority. I could stand here and I could make these claims. And there are people in the history of, of the world who have stood up and made similar claims as well. That's what Jesus is doing in front of these religious people. He's making staggering claims that he is God and he has the power to act as God makes. It is simple to make the claims. What you've then got to do when you've made the claims is prove it. You've got to do something to back up what you say. Now, in a Jewish court, if you wanted to prove something about yourself, if you wanted to prove something about a char your character, you couldn't just stand up 
and said yourself. What you had to do is you had to call three witnesses. Three witnesses who would stand and testify and say, what this person says is absolutely true. Your word on its own was not enough. You needed the backup of three witnesses. That's what Jesus Christ now does in the rest of the chapter. He's made the claims. He is God. But don't just take my word for it. Here are the three witnesses who are going to testify that I really am the Son of God. The first witness that he calls is John the Baptist. Let's look at verse 31 through to verse 33. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. That's the law of the land. On his own, Jesus' own testimony, not worthwhile. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now, the John here he talks about is not the the author of the gospel here. He's referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a prominent ministry. John the Baptist, who these religious Jews would have heard speak, they've actually called John to him because they want to investigate. They want to find out more. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He went before him, and his ministry was not to point to himself. The ministry of John the Baptist was to point people to Jesus, to point them in the right direction direction. And he encouraged people, John the Baptist encouraged people to look to Jesus. Why look to Jesus? Because he's the the Lamb of God. He made these references back into the Old Testament, this sacrifice, this one who will deal with our sins. It's Jesus. And so he was pointing to Jesus. He was testifying about him. He even made this statement about himself. He, that's Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. And so he pointed people towards Jesus Christ. He's the first witness who speaks in favor that Jesus really is the Messiah. But how do we know that what John said was true? Well, Jesus doesn't leave there, and so he calls witness number two. And the second witness that testifies to who he is are the signs and the wonders and the works and the miracles that he has been doing. Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The works that I do, the signs. So let's go back to the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine. That's a sign that testifies, that witnesses that this is somebody special. Then last week in Cana and Galilee again where he heals a son at a distance, That speaks, that testifies, that's a work that testifies that Jesus is the Christ. And then he has healed this man who's been an invalid for 38 years and he's walked off. That work testifies to the fact that I am who I claim to be. You see, every miracle, every miracle is a clear sign. And the purpose of these miracles is not only that these people would see them and know that Jesus is the Son of God, but as we Keep coming back to John chapter 20, which gives us the purpose of of these signs. Jesus did these signs, they're recorded in Scripture, that you might believe. And by believing, you might might have life, and life in the name of Jesus Christ. These are signs that show us who Jesus is, so that we would see them, we would believe, 
and we would find life in his name. So that's two witnesses, John the Baptist, the miracles, the works that Jesus does. We're one witness short, so Jesus calls the third witness to testify. And the third witness is the very word of God, the words that God himself spoke, that he speaks audibly, and also that is recorded in Scripture as well. Let's read from verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So the third and final witness is God the Father himself. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, there are times in Scripture where the Father has spoken audibly. We think of the baptism of Jesus right at the start of his ministry where he's baptized by John the Baptist and a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so we have this witness, this testimony from heaven itself that Jesus isn't an ordinary man. He is, in fact, the Son of God. Jesus also spoke through the Old Testament, the Old Scripture, Testament scriptures that these Jewish religious people would have had. And as you read your way through scriptures, this is the word of God. God is speaking through his word. They continually point to Jesus. And so we have these prophecies that are pointing to the kind of Messiah, what he will do, how he will come, how he will act. We have the sacrifices that point towards Jesus. We have the rituals, the religious rituals with their symbolism. They're all pointing us towards Jesus. We have a song that we sing here in our children's ministry of the children's great song. We sing it on Monday night, CB Kids Monday. It's all about Jesus. And the song is all about scripture from Genesis to Revelation, even further than these religious people would have. And right the way through scripture, scripture is screaming out. It is calling out with one clear voice and it's pointing us all in direction that it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the focus of Scripture. Jesus is the one who makes, or Scripture makes sense when you see him on its pages. And yet these people, these Jews, they searched the Scriptures. They were the Bible experts of their day. They scrutinized the Scriptures, and even though it was clearly in front of them, they failed to see that the Scriptures were pointing to Jesus. They feel to see that the scriptures were testifying to exactly who Jesus is. And sadly, people today are exactly the same. There's very religious people who are the same, and non-religious people who are the same as well, still blinded to the truth. And they feel to see exactly who Jesus is, and so they don't follow the signs where they're going, and they live their lives in completely the opposite direction. They also fail to listen to the witnesses, Scripture itself, the incredible things that Jesus did. They ignore them, and so they head off in the wrong direction. I want to encourage you this evening. The Bible's very clear, and the Bible's very simple. And as we think about it on Sunday nights, don't miss the obvious. Don't miss the signs. Don't miss the evidence and come to the wrong conclusion. Don't miss these things and by doing so reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. 
And so what you need to do if you've never trusted Jesus Christ is to see exactly who he is. And if Jesus is who he claims to be, then you need to give your life to him. And you need to follow him. And you need to make him the savior of your life. Now, if Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, don't waste your life following him. Okay, that'd be a waste of time. But if you can see that Jesus is the son of God and he is who he claimed to be, then you need to believe in him and discover the life that comes from believing in his name. Now, there's another interesting part of the story. The place where Jesus healed the man was the pool of Bethesda. The word Bethesda means the house of grace. That's exactly what we find that day when Jesus heals the man. We, we find a house of grace. See, Jesus came in and he saw a multitude of sick people. I don't know how many people there. They're all lying around the pool, desperate to be healed. Jesus chose one man out of them all and he healed them. Was this man any more deserving than anybody else? Probably not. He was in the same situation and yet Jesus Christ chose him. It was the house of grace that day for him. It's actually a beautiful picture of salvation. It's a beautiful picture of salvation that ought to humble us if we are believers. Because we have experienced the house of grace. He chose us. As Ephesians 1 tells us, he chose us before the foundation of the world. This incredible mystery. Did we deserve it? No. No. He chose us and he came into our lives and he extended the hand of grace and of mercy and of love and forgiveness. It's not to do with our merits. It's purely an act of his grace. And he chose us for his glory. And these different signs that we see throughout John's gospel, they all give us different insights into what kind of Messiah he is. And so we thought in the, in the uh, turning the water into the wine, he's the one who brings joy. He brings an abundance of joy. What do we see here in this miracle, this sign? He's a God of grace who compassionately reaches in and changes, dramatically changes a life. That's the kind of savior we have. A savior who's full of grace for people who don't deserve it. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. And so if Jesus Christ is your savior, if you do believe, if you find life in his name, that should fill your heart with joy. And it should make you want to give thanks. Now this morning when I preached in Joshua uh, chapter six, there were lots of applications, lots of spiritual applications that were woven throughout the sermon. And the purpose of those applications was there was so much teaching and truth coming out of this passage. There's not as many applications here tonight because the points that come out of this passage are very simple, but very clear. And they're also something that we need to respond to. And so very simply, just in our last few moments here, before our musicians come and lead us in song, I want us to give us, give us all an opportunity to respond to the simple, clear teaching of this gospel passage. And so we're just going to take a few moments of silence, as we sometimes do here in this church, to respond to what we learn about Jesus Christ in this passage. And so if you're not a believer, and you realize that Jesus is the Son of God, don't walk past the sign. Don't go in the other direction. But in the quietness, 
And I urge you to cry out to trust him as your Lord and Savior. Don't be like one of these religious people who try and nitpick and find other things and look for, you know, miss the whole point. Don't be like that. No, in the silence, call on, be, on him and be saved. And if you are a believer, many of you are here tonight, just use this chance to respond and give thanks that Jesus really is the Son of God. And he's an incredible Savior. And he has stepped into your life and you've experienced his grace. Did you deserve it? No, you were just like the man in the story. But he sought and found you. And he rescued you. And so just give thanks. And from the joy in your heart, just praise him. Let's take a few moments to respond to this passage.